Welcome back to the Teen Catalyst Podcast, helping teens turn doubt into confidence, tap into their strengths, and discover their creativity so they can start a side hustle based on their strengths so they can live a life they love. And sometimes living a life you love means you face hard questions. Today we're going to dive into one of those hard questions, a hard topic to talk about and think about sometimes. I had the pleasure today of interviewing Jackie Simmons on the very tough topic of teen suicide. Jackie is a TEDx speaker, radio show host, international best-selling author, resilience master, and co-founder of the Teen Suicide Prevention Society. She's best known for her mission to stop teen suicide. In 1995, she was blindsided by her 14-year-old daughter's suicide attempt, and she entered a world of depression, addictions, medical mysteries, and deadly silences. The journey into the world of mental health services and cultural taboos left Jackie feeling lost and alone. On August 3, 2019, Jackie's now 37-year-old daughter broke the silence, and Jackie wasn't ready. She calls that day the day her purpose tapped her on the shoulder. I think you'll enjoy this interview with Jackie as we go on the journey that launched her mission to stop teen suicide. And with that, I say, hey, Jackie, welcome to the Teen Catalyst podcast. Oh, thank you, Kenneth. I am super excited to be here today. Awesome. Glad to have you. So most of my audience probably has not heard of you. So give us a quick intro of who is Jackie Simmons and how did you go from sitting in high school, you know, thinking about what you wanted to do with your future to having a TEDx talk and the work that you do with teen suicide prevention. All right. You asked for it. You're going to get it. <laughs> Let's hear it. In high school, I dreamed of being in business. I was part of Junior Achievement and, and you know, it's a great leadership program and it taught me all about how corporations really work. And that information absolutely had nothing to do with what entrepreneurialism is really like. But I didn't know that in high school. I thought I was ready to tackle the world. And um, I tackled the world by taking what I now call, and all the young ladies out there, listen up, I call this the great American escape route. Instead of college and career, I did marriage and children. Mm -hmm. So fast forward a few years, I'm a single mom with three kids under the age of six. Wow. I went back to work. Now, I've been out of the work field for a while. I went back to work in sales. There's a challenge. I'm not really good at it. And I certainly wasn't very good at it back then. But I was good enough to get the job. I got to the end of the month and I could pay for daycare or I could pay for rent. I couldn't do both. That's a tough choice. It was a tough choice. So luckily, I had an angel, a friend who said, Jackie, you know, I do daycare in my home as a registered family daycare provider. Why don't you see about, boy, I fast tracked through that registration process. I call this being an accidental entrepreneur because I knew nothing about business as far as entrepreneurialism. I knew nothing about um, networking or, you know, what now I know as referrals all I knew is I had three kids with a roof to keep over their head and food to put on the table. And so part of my story is, hey, wake up call to parents. Don't wait to talk to your kids about the reality of early parenthood. You know, doesn't mean that you can't be a good parent, but it does start you off 
with, or it started me off with a sort of challenge. Um, a high school diploma did not carry me as far as I needed to go to feed three kids. So entrepreneurialism was my way. And what I learned was that showing up at the bus stop and just telling people what I was doing was enough. Sometimes that's all you got to do is tell people what you're doing and what you want. It's all about getting the message out. It's all about getting the message out. And networking is, I didn't know that's what I was doing, but that's what I was doing. So that's my entrepreneurial journey. And then my parenting journey took a real left turn. And that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. Because I I got busy. You know, I got busy with this whole entrepreneur thing. I actually started (laughs) teaching other entrepreneurs how to do their marketing and wrap a business around what they're good at. And I love what I do with entrepreneurs. And I was teaching them how to give talks because you got to get your message out. So it's Mm. always been about the message, except that in... June of 1995, when my middle daughter was 14, it was the start of summer vacation. And the girls, I got three daughters, they're ready, they're getting ready to go visit their dad and his family. One stayed away. Yeah, they go every summer. If you've ever been around teenage girls, that means shopping. (laughs) Their favorite thing to do, right? (laughs) Well, my daughter, Stephanie, was 14. She's in between her sisters, in between schools. And in between clothing sizes, wow! the shopping became an adventure. (laughs) Kenneth, outfit after outfit, store after store, nothing fitter. And at the end of the day, we came home with nothing except an attitude. I bet. Yeah, you could imagine, right? Oh, my (laughs) God. Stephanie headed straight upstairs to the bathroom, and I collapsed on the sofa in the living room. I was grateful to be off my feet and to have some peace and quiet. And then. Mom, I think I need help. Kenneth, my eyes were drawn to Stephanie's left arm. Blood was dripping down her fingers onto the wood floor. The emotional part of my brain started screaming in panic at the sight of my bleeding, obviously suicidal child. The rational part of my brain started flipping through the files in my head, looking for the date of her last tetanus shot. I wrapped her in my arms and assessed the wounds. Have you ever been panicky and calm at the same time? It's an amazing phenomenon. (laughs) It is. I mean, the wounds were not life-threatening, so we put bandages on them and made plans to visit the teen mental health facility the next day. You know, eventually we stopped crying, and the mutual I'm sorry's got shared, and she slept. Kenneth, I couldn't risk being away from her, so we were sleeping in the living room. Between us? her handwritten note, her promise not to harm herself again while I slept. Like I was going to close my eyes that night. All night, I just stared into the darkness and I listened to her breathe and I was grateful she was still alive. Mm -hmm. And all I could think about was what just happened. How the hell did this happen? And who's to blame? Because it had to be somebody's fault, right? Yeah, I can't imagine the the emotional trauma as a parent with your child trying to take their own life. Is is that what set you off on your journey? For I, the, oh my God, I wish I could say that it did. I mean, what happened after that night was counseling, therapy, you know, interventions, medications, hospitalizations, and thirteen more attempts, wow. and. 
I sold myself on one idea. Remember, I said I wasn't good at sales. Well, this is where I became good at sales. I sold myself on the idea that as long as Stephanie was getting professional help, we didn't need to talk about it. Would you want to know what could cause your child so much mental and emotional pain that they thought dying was better than living? It, it would. It's a scary thought as a parent. You know, it, it can come back to you and nobody wants that. I didn't want to know. So I didn't ask. That silence on the topic of suicide lasted over 23 years. And then on August the 3rd, 2019, Stephanie broke the silence. The morning of her talk was sunny and already hot. The conference room was on the outskirts of Sarasota, Florida. I walked in and greeted the 12 speakers that I'd trained to deliver messages that matter. Stephanie, oh my God, she was in that nervous, excited state you get into right before you give a talk. She looked amazing in her dark blouse and flowery skirt and her hair pulled back in combs. Kenneth, I am super proud of my daughter. She was first up on the speaker's roster. The audience took their seats. The videographer was set, the projector and the microphone, everything worked. And I welcomed her to the front of the room. Everybody help me welcome Stephanie Ashton. She walked confidently up and shook my hand. And then she said, 3,000 American teens will attempt to take their own lives today in the U.S. And in the back of the room, I went, huh? I had no clue the number was that high. I also didn't know suicide was her topic. That's a shock. It was a shock. Well, what was more shocking was that she started the next sentence with when I was 14. Mm. After a bad day of shopping, I stood in my bathroom. The pain of not fitting into any clothes was just more proof that I didn't fit in anywhere. And that pain was more than I could bear. So I took a razor, and cut into my left arm, trying to end the pain and my life. In the back of the room, I could feel the blood drain from my face. Have you ever been hijacked by a bad memory? I have. Yeah, that's what happened to me. And Stephanie just kept right on talking. She shared that it wasn't her only attempt, that there had been others. And that outside of professional help, we'd never really talked about it. Oh, and then she shared. Let's see. Um, Mom and I had the other talks. Mom and I had the talk about, about sex. Mom and I had the talk about drugs. Mom and I had the talk about alcohol. Then I went to college on a dry campus. That means the kegs were hidden in the showers of the girls' dorm. <laughs> Mom and I had the talk about alcohol more than once. But we never had the talk about suicide. And I still struggle with suicidal thoughts. Kenneth, in the back of the room, I went from pale to bone cold as my heart just sank. And I realized the struggles that my daughter had lived through alone because I didn't have the courage to have the talk about suicide. My 30 years of stress management training are the only reason I didn't just crawl into a corner and bawl my eyes out that day. I believe that. Stephanie wound up her talk with, along my suicide avoidant journey, I've learned tons of coping skills. And now I want to teach those skills to teens before they need them. Mm -hmm. Yes, before they need them. Amen. 
everybody, I mean, oh my God, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, Kenneth, including mine. Everybody stood up and gave her a standing ovation and people rushed up and hugged her and thanked her for being so vulnerable, so willing, so brave. And in the back of the room, I was frozen. I was torn between pride for her bravery and guilt and shame for Mm. my cowardice. And then it hit me, Kenneth. 3,000 teens attempt to take their own lives every day. This means 6,000 parents start to live the guilt nightmare that I live every day. And this means over 20,000 grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, and sisters start to live that guilt nightmare every day. And this means hundreds of thousands of classmates, teachers, boyfriends, girlfriends, and neighbors all get caught up in that guilt nightmare every day and all probably just as blindsided by it as I had been. And then, Kenneth, this is how the mission got started. I wondered, what if Stephanie was right? What if the way to stop teen suicide was as simple as having the talk about suicide before they need it, before they start to struggle with suicidal thinking? Oh, my God. I mean, this is so simple and obvious that professionals have tripped over it. You know, we don't have programs that are preventative for suicide. They're they're not proactive. They're all reactive to risk. What if we could create a program that was proactive, that was really preventative? And that's why after that event, well, here's the first miracle. After that event, Stephanie and I decided to work together. Who knew that was possible? (laughs) That's amazing. So we co-founded, along with their sisters, we co-founded the Teen Suicide Prevention Society, and we started teaching to anyone we could, to youth group leaders and parents and teachers and you know anybody who would show up. We were teaching all my clients. It's like, please come. I want to teach you this, this idea we've got that would be preventative. And we ended up creating a guide. It's a simple script that's science-based. It actually is designed to work with the teen brain the way the teen brain really works. And Kenneth, it's designed to save the parents or the friends from ever living the guilt nightmare. It's also set up to tell you when intervention is needed. That's amazing. That's, that's an awesome tool. Where, where can, uh, How can we learn more about that? Well, we got two options depending. One is that I can give everybody the website. It's simply teensuicidepreventionsociety.com. They can get more information there. For the program, for the talk that saved lives, we'll make some time and I'll just walk you through the talk and then everybody can get it. Hey, that sounds good. Let's hear it. All right. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. It's only four questions. Okay. All right. First question. Have you heard about the rise in teen suicides? Yes. Yes, I have. Thank you. Kenneth, second question. Do you have a story? Do you have a friend who's tried or died? I don't have a friend, but I know some friends of friends that have. Thank you. Kenneth, third question. Have you ever thought of leaving that way? I, I won't, I, I can't honestly say the thought has not ever been there. Never seriously, but sometimes, yeah, obviously when you, when you get into life situations, it's like, wow, it'd just be so much easier to not have to deal with any of it. Thank you. Fourth question. Kenneth, 
Why stay? What are your reasons for staying? Impact. Um, I'm as a I'm a Christian, so as a Christian, I believe we have a mission here on earth to impact other people's lives, and I've got to live out that mission. What else? It's a good question. Um, I don't know. That's that's the uh, that's the constant search for purpose and meaning in life, fulfillment, and that's a good question. Tell tell me tell me what you found on that. The fun part about this question is that we have another way of asking it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here you go. Here's the other way to ask it. Kenneth, what's so good about your life that you want more of it? Well, I've been intentional about the way I've designed my life. So I didn't always love everything I did. I didn't necessarily like where I lived, the career I was in. I wanted to make a change. And so I ended up moving to a homestead out in the country where we've got animals, we've got um, I enjoy most of the work I do, and I love working with teens. So that's all of those things have combined to give me a purpose for life, to, to yeah, for meaning, for, for wanting to live for more. When you get a chance to look at this video and the people even just listening could hear it in your voice, when you tapped into your reasons for staying, the what's so good about your life that you want more of it, when you tapped into that, your whole body changed. I mean, your <laughs> yeah, physiology yeah. changed. And what happened in your brain was that you started building out this whole file, this whole neuro network, mm-hmm. and the network has a label. It's reasons for staying. Wow, and so amazing. now when you have those bad days, those thoughts of maybe it'd be easier just to, to leave. Right. And by the way, suicidal thoughts are normal. According to Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, suicidal thoughts are normal. They're part of our natural negative bias, our problem-solving mechanism. So one, they're nothing to be afraid of, but most people don't know that. We're trained to be afraid. When you're afraid of a thought, what do you do? You try not to think it. Yeah, you stuff it. So what happens when you try not to think about an elephant? (laughs) You think about an elephant. (laughs) When you try not to think a thought, what you're really doing is doubling down on the thought and you're adding the emotion of fear to it. So now you've got a thought that's powered by emotion and your subconscious mind is designed to bring about what you think about, what it thinks is important because you're thinking about it, especially if there's emotion around it. And so it's your subconscious mind starts looking for opportunities and creating them to bring about what you think about. In a teen, this is a problem because a teen does not have part of their brain yet. They don't have a prefrontal cortex. They don't have a pause button. That's why teens are impulsive. All it takes is opportunity to cross subconscious plan and teens are in action without any conscious thought. This is why they've had to install jump nets on bridges. And that's where our tax dollars at work. That's suicide prevention on the American plan. I think it's intervention and that we can do better. So our whole focus is we can do better than this. So that's what the program is. Hmm? I said preventing the impulse in the first place. Yeah. If we can prevent people from struggling with suicidal thinking, here's, you know, sometimes it's about the questions you ask. Most organizations and programs are asking the question, how do we stop suicide? So their intervention, they've got hotlines, they've got trained intervention specialists. 
we decided to ask a different question. Our question is not how do we stop suicide? Our question is how do we stop suicidal thinking? There you go. Gotcha. And and it's really not even to stop the thinking because the thoughts are normal. It's to stop the thinking from getting hooked right, into the brain. That's why we we create fun names like emotional Teflon so that these negative thoughts, yours and other people's, just slide right off of you. And the shift from emotional Velcro, which is where most of us are. I used to walk around wearing a suit of emotional Velcro (laughs) that was negatively charged. Yeah, Yeah, I could walk through a room. And by the time I got on the other side of the room, I was exhausted because everybody's negative emotions were just stuck all over me. And it was heavy. Now I'm coated in emotional Teflon and other people's emotions just slide right off of me. And by the way, so do their opinions, their judgments, (laughs) and their expectations. All of that stays other people's Mm. and I'm in the center of my own life. And that's the power of the program we've got is that it helps people stay in the center, in the center of their own life. Awesome. So before we go more into that, where people can find out more about that program, talk to me a little bit about the signs of suicide, say a parent or a teen at school has a friend how can they recognize if their friend or teenager is a candidate for, or somebody who would be considering suicide? What are the signs they should look for? I'm going to tell you that looking for signs is asking for trouble. And there are two reasons why. One, if there are signs you're too late to prevent. Now they need intervention and they need the help of a trained intervention specialist. And there are checklists all over the Center for Disease Control. There's actually a program that I'm checking out that teaches how to have the talk if you think someone's at risk. That's not what we do. We teach you how to have the talk before you think someone's at risk, how to practice this talk with everyone to prevent them from ever becoming at risk. We're upstream. That's why this is a leadership program. When you're willing to have the talk, to practice this talk, because it's just a script. And it's really simple. It's very precise. My students just read it. You never have to memorize it. You just read it. Yeah. So where, and, where can we get that script? They, you can get that script, actually, and, and you can get the suicide risk factor assessment. So you get that at a website. You can't tell by looking.com. You can't tell by looking.com. All right. And that's intentionally designed to help you remember that you don't look for signs because you can't tell by looking. You can't even tell by looking in a medical file. This is common where a kid who has a severe mental health diagnosis, the men, the doctors don't ever talk to the parents about suicide risk. They don't talk to the kid about suicide risk. Even the doctors aren't trained to have the talk that prevents suicide. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're not trained in this because nobody's thinking proactive here. It's got so much emotional baggage around the word even that people are afraid to talk about it. But Hollywood is not afraid to make money on it. (laughs) No, that's for sure. They have more movies and TV shows with the word suicide in the title now than we have ever had before. They have monetized something that... And on the one hand, I'm grateful because it's bringing the word more into mainstream. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, I think that there's something tragic about it. Yeah. If one glamorized it, 
to the point where it's uh it's become a thing kenneth it's become a thing and the challenge is that when one child takes their own life everyone who knows them their brain now accepts tacit approval for that as an acceptable activity this is why what we know to be true is that suicide is contagious especially among teens there's a basketball team who Two years ago, lost five members at one high school. No one is immune from the contagion of suicide. No one. The higher up you go with success, sometimes the more at risk you are. So either end of the spectrum are the highest numbers. The socioeconomically challenged and the socioeconomically privileged, the highest Suicide rate in any one high school, last time I looked, was in Silicon Valley. This is not a stat they want people to know. The highest college, the highest colleges, I'll just put the whole, I won't name one, they're they're all in New England. They're the highest pressure environments. They, with that pressure, without proper preparation and a preventative program, something that's proactive. They have been known for decades as being the highest risk for suicide. Well, the more pressure and expectations placed on you by outside influences and the pressure to perform that we've seemed to place on kids as a society, it just drives more than their brains can handle. I think that's bullying. I think pressuring anyone to perform in an area they are not naturally gifted in counts as bullying. And we do it to every single child in school. Yeah. Wow. So what's what's one thing you would leave with our audience, with the parents and teens that listen to this podcast, that you would, a resource you'd like to point them to, or a, uh, a, a bit of information you'd like them to have before we end the show? The resource I'd like to point them to is youcanttellbylooking.com. It's going to answer your need for their suicide risk factors. And it's going to give you the script for the talk that saves lives. So we give that away all day, every day. Please come and get it. We we are looking. uh, We'll make sure we drop those links in the show notes. And uh, that way people can have, you know, all the resources they need to not only for suicide prevention, to to spot it ahead of time or to, um, to prevent those thoughts from even going that far. So I really appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much, Kenneth. I really appreciate your time and being on your show. All right. We'll talk to you later.